Scripture today is kind of interesting because it begins in the Gospel of Luke, and then Luke and Matthew recorded the same thing. It's the ask, seek, and knock section, for those of you who are familiar with that. So we're going to start with the prologue part of Luke, and then we'll end with the post postlogue. Am I making a word up? The ending of, of how Matthew ends that passage. It reads this way. Uh, Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed and I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, Yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Thank you so much, Jeff. So, I heard a story recently about a man who took his son to a diner for lunch. When they got their food, they were getting ready to pray. And uh, it, the father said, son, we'll just have a time of silent prayer together. They, they bowed their heads and they prayed. The father kind of did his own thing. And then he looked up and his, his son was, had his hands folded in silent prayer for quite a long time. And uh, finally, he kind of looked up and his dad said, well, what were you praying about for so long? How was, was a long prayer? And his son said, how should I know? It was a silent prayer. <laughs> something so basic to our spiritual lives, though prayer can be kind of, we, we have different ways that we go about it, right? Different ways that we, uh, we talk about prayer, we, uh, we learn about prayer. We can sometimes feel a bit confused, frustrated, maybe even just a little bit insecure about our prayer lives. A lot of times we don't pray out loud because we're not really entirely sure what to say or if people are going to think that we're saying the wrong thing or something, right? Am I doing it right? Uh, last week for our adult Bible study, we talked a bit about prayer and, and all of the things that uh, Jesus teaches and commands us specifically about prayer. Uh, uh, if you get the email uh, chain, you, you would have seen a, a handout that we actually used. And some of those commands are things like we read this morning, don't be showy and babble a bunch. Uh, but also things like let your light shine. So pray in such a way that points others to God, you know, that it's not all about others looking at yourself. Um, Seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness above all else. He tells us to do that. He tells us specifically to pray, ask for more workers of the harvest, to ask for people to to come and join in God's mission so people can come to know him. He says elsewhere, whenever you stand praying, forgive, as Bill pointed out last week. So as long as we're sitting, we don't have to forgive people, right, Uh, when we pray. And then finally, to pray in faith continually. Trusting that God gives good gifts. I love that parable we just read that uh, uh, Jesus shares about the friend at midnight and said shameless audacity. And that one sometimes it uh, almost gives the the appearance that you just are annoying enough, right, that you'll get God's attention. But his, his point there being God wants to give you good gifts if you would come to him in, uh, in courage and in faith. 
Most, most of this was covered in our readings already this, this morning, but there's one command that we didn't talk about yet in our readings or things this morning, uh, and uh, we didn't talk about it last week either because there was enough of it that I thought, I want to give a whole message on this one. And it's the Lord's Prayer. Um, in Matthew, after talking about not being showy, and in Luke, before talking about having faith, uh, Jesus gives us a model for what kinds of things that we could say. Many of us have memorized this prayer. Uh, we say it here just about every Sunday at the end of our service. It's kind of a tradition of mine that we close in that way. But this morning, we're going to talk about what it means. We're going to reflect on that a little bit together. Uh, there's some really profound context behind these words. And sometimes because we have it memorized, we say it so frequently, we kind of miss the significance behind the words, what exactly we're saying. But I'm going I'm to read the words for us from Matthew chapter 6 real quick. Uh, verses 9 through 13, pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, may your name be revered as holy. I'm reading from the NRSB here, which might have some slightly different wording. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Today, give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us the evil one. So I want to pray for us for a moment, and then we're just going to get into it. Sound good? Lord, as we reflect on the words you have given us to pray this morning, pray that we would see it with new significance, that you would open our eyes, our ears, our spirits to whatever you have to say to us as we study uh, these words, as we come to a, a deeper appreciation of who you are and who you are calling us out to be and, and the special relationship that we have to you in prayer. May we, uh, in our time of reflection this morning, be drawn closer to you. We might look more like you. Amen. Amen. So uh, we're going to get right into it. The first words of this prayer that Jesus has given us um, are kind of, they're, all of the, the phrases are, are God and, and world-centered requests, but these first ones uh, you'll have to see, well, the last ones have to do with us, but uh, and these first ones do as well. The first says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's such a personal beginning to the prayer, significant for a few reasons. One, we might immediately call to mind Jesus' special relationship with the Father, right? And we are adopted as sons and daughters, now co-heirs with Christ. And so when we begin, our Father in heaven, we are recalling that relationship. In a broader sense, we might also think of God as being creator, originator of all things, a, a father of sorts. But a specific background here that we might miss is God being the father of Israel, the Hebrew people, his firstborn, when he speaks of Israel is the word he uses. In Exodus 4, verse 22 through 23, when, when God is speaking to Moses, telling him to go back to Pharaoh, uh, to Egypt, to, for his people to be uh, let go and, and freed, he says, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. So, God is uh, speaking through Moses to Pharaoh and for the first time identifies this special relationship with his people as a father to a child and the kind of protective relationship that that goes with as well. 
when Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray now, to pray to God as Father, their first connection likely would have been to God as his fatherhood to them as a people, to remember how he made them, how he saved them, how he protected them, called them out as a special people, deemed them his firstborn. God chose them. This is a really profound mystery and joy for us as well in the gospel that all the world is grafted into that same family, that we can claim that same special relationship. God made you, God chose you to be a part of the family. But lest we get too caught up in that relational language, it also has expectations for us as well. Jesus' next words are, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? Anybody know what the word hallowed means? We were talking about this with our kids this uh, last week, and they're like, that's such a weird word. We never use the word hallowed. Uh, the closest thing they could think of was Halloween, which actually does have a connection, because that started out with all hallows, Eve. Think, think about saints being set apart, the idea of being holy. We're saying, God, may your name be made holy. What does that mean, though? How can we make God's name holy? Isn't it already holy? Well, a few verses that might help us to think about this. There are several times in the Psalms and elsewhere where uh, the psalmists say things like, he guides me along right paths. This is the famous Psalm 23. Many of us know it. It's for his name's sake. It's this appeal to God doing something for his own name's sake several times, usually uh, asking that he would do things like protect them, guide them, forgive them for his name's sake. Why would that matter? Why would he care about uh, doing it for those reasons? You get another clue in Ezekiel 36, when God is uh, um, telling Israel that not for their sake, but because of his holy name, which they have profaned among uh, the nations, that he is going to save them in the midst of exile and bring them back and put a new heart within them, help them to be different than they were before when they were faithless. In verse 22, God tells Israel, it's not for their sake, but because of his holy name, they have profaned. In verse 23, that I will show the holiness of my great name. Hallow my great name. How did they profane his name? They were being faithless, uh, unfaithful to the covenant relationship. They were following after idols. They were doing all sorts of things that just like all the other nations did. And then they were carried off into exile. And he's saying, I am going to change something within you so that when people know that you bear my name, they'll know the kind of God that I am by the kind of people that you are. The takeaway here is that when God claims us as children and we claim God as father, we are bearing God's name in a significant way. And the ways in which we act, both individually and corporately, will either profane God's name or glorify God's name. This is significant because it used to be whenever I would pray that, that part of the prayer, uh, God, your kingdom come, your will be done, what I would mean is things like, Lord, would you make the world look a little bit better, uh, more like I think it ought to be? Would you bring healing? Would you bring hope? Which are all good things, and it is part of this prayer, I believe. But when Jesus is saying this, recalling the special relationship that we have with God, bearing his name, we are essentially saying, in the way that we embody our witness in the world and bear your name, would you help it to look more like your kingdom? Would you help uh, our witness to reflect your kingdom, O Lord? In a sense, we're already saying what comes next. Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done. 
can build on this. You know, after uh, delivering Israel, the firstborn out of Egypt, God prepares Moses to give them the law. And he says this in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings, brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So these are the words you are to speak to the Israelites, God tells them. Peter picks up, picks up on that same language also. In 1 Peter 2.9, you likely know this first, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That Also in uh, Revelation chapter 5, a verse we've appealed to often, and the heavenly throne room, there's this song sung uh, that says, you are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain with your blood. You purchased from, uh, for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, reign on the earth. There's this kingdom language, this embodiment of God's kingdom on earth through his people, made to be a kingdom. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's not just a sort of abstract, God, please make the situation of the world better than it is today. We're praying that we can be fully realized witnesses his glory. Recognizing that the way that we live and the things that we desire even, they matter. It's then given direct application in the next few clauses of this prayer. And these next three uh, kind of petitions that we see in the Lord's Prayer, give us our daily bread, forgive us, lead us not into temptation. They're, these are all a little more us-centered, right? And yet they are applying what we've just told. Give us today our daily bread. This has to do with our attitude towards the material world. Lord, just give me what I need for the day, right? But it also immediately calls to mind another event when we go back to Exodus while they're wandering in the wilderness. And they're hungry. And they say, Lord, what are we going to eat? And he gives them manna, right? In Deuteronomy 8.3, there's a reminder. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known about to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We were talking about this. The word manna even uh, it means what is it, right? It was, it was so strange to them. It was this miraculous sort of provision. And in that time of, of wilderness wandering, they came to rely on what God would give them for each day, not taking any more uh, or any less than what they needed, but, but trusting that he would provide for them. This idea of teaching us to, to trust in him. And it's quite strange that Jesus' words, uh, words it this way. You know, today, each day, our daily bread, it's kind of redundant. But it shows us this direct allusion to the manna event. We're not supposed to be a people of scarcity mindset, even when we're hungry. This is also uh, strange for Jesus in a, 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 a very real sense to him. He lives this out in a strange way. Because he's simultaneously the guy who multiplies bread for thousands of people and feeds them, and yet also the same one who spends 40 days fasting in the wilderness, turns down bread offered to him by disciples, saying things like, I've got food that you don't know about. Who fed this guy? 
<laughs> who is he? My food is to do the will of my Father. So this prayer, it's, it's more like a, uh, um, more than a petition for daily provision. It's this prophetic reminder to us that God will sustain us and, and fulfill his promises to us. The next petition, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. It starts to take up this posture towards others and our relationship with them. And again, we see another callback to Exodus and the law. Sometimes wonder, if you look in Matthew and Luke, they both record this prayer, and Matthew records it with the word debtors. In Luke's version, he said those who sin against us, and then he switches to the language of debt right after that, uh, as we forgive those who are indebted to us. That debt language is pretty significant because it, again, pulls to mind things that happen in the, uh, for the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy 15, we can get this uh, recollection of the law where um, they would have to, every seven years, forgive debts. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israel, Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. The rest of chapter 15 fleshes out specifically what that ought to look like. We can also find in Leviticus chapter 25, the stipulations around the year of Jubilee, which is like um, they count out seven of these years, and then on year 50, that is when uh, they have a, a huge cancellation of debts and returning people back to the, the land of their ancestors. Uh, it's the, the great equalizing sort of time. They have it built into the very fabric of their being, this idea of uh, of justice and equality and equity, forgiving sins to one another. It's as if Jesus is reminding them then, saying, you know that thing that you've been doing for generations since Egypt? Pray that God will forgive you in that same way, just like that. This one's a hard one for us. We mentioned this even last week as we were talking about when you stand uh, and pray, forgive other people, because Jesus is pretty unforgiving on the idea of forgiveness. We have to do this. We have to forgive one another. He says in several places, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you for your sins. This is how my heavenly father will treat, this is the parable uh, in Matthew chapter 18, if you remember the, the parable of the unforgiving servant, uh, and he, he ends up, uh, the master in that, uh, that parable says, if you're not going to forgive someone after I've just forgiven you so much, this is how you will be treated well. Jesus requires, commands us to forgive one another. In fact, the only things that the gospel tells us can stand the way, uh, in the way of us receiving the grace and forgiveness offered by Jesus are, one, if we reject Jesus altogether, and two, we're refusing to extend that same grace to others. Jesus demands that we forgive others, and we ask, then, that God would continue to forgive us as we have forgiven. Another strange phrase, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is another strange one. Like, why would we even need to pray this, right? That he would lead us in, not into temptation. Well, it seems simple on the surface that the translation and application of this petition uh, 
is probably the most difficult one out of all of them. Because does it imply that somehow God does prompt us to, to, into temptation or lead us there unless we ask him not to? In the New Testament makes it clear that's not the case. In, in James chapter 1, we can see down here at the bottom, uh, it says that when we're tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted, and they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. You see that it's, it's, it's not God tempting us, but it's our own evil desires that allow us to, it, it, when we are triggered by something, to maybe seize upon that opportunity. However, it's clear that God does allow us to experience times of trial, or else we wouldn't experience them, right? Jesus himself endured 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. It was a sort of reliving of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. So God doesn't tempt us but does sometimes lead us into places and situations which may test us. It's not God tempting us, but our evil desires tempting us. But there's a reason, it seems like, that God might lead us here. So if there's a reason for God to do this, why would Jesus suggest that we pray to avoid it? I think what we see here, just as everything else in this prayer has been rooted in Israel's salvation history, we can note how much pain might have been saved if they would never have complained in the first place. If they, uh, if they wouldn't have, uh, in the midst of their, um, their discomfort and their, um, their uncertainty about the future, longed for uh, Egypt again. Our greatest breakthroughs do often come at times when we are at our most vulnerable. God meets us in the midst of those vulnerable places. Uh, he, he helps us to experience him, sometimes through cycles of things. We, we are tempted, we're tested, and we fail. We fall to our temptation. And then he continues to show his grace to us. He continues to seek us. He continues to rescue us. And then we do find breakthrough. But something deep within us understands, I think, as well. It would be really nice if we didn't have to get, that vulnerable, get to that vulnerable place to begin with. My dad used to uh, say things like, you know, you can learn from other people's, uh, you can learn from your own mistakes, right? You learn in a, a pretty profound way, but you can also learn from other people's mistakes, right? And how much better for you not to have to go through that in the first place to learn from what other people have done. I think that Jesus, having experienced his own wilderness temptation, empathizes with us and encourages us to pray that we might be able to find deliverance without trial. Lord, would you not lead us into that place where we have to uh, experience such hardship, but instead would you deliver us and help us to hunger and thirst for your righteousness on our own? It reminds me of the words of that song we sang earlier, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we don't carry everything God prayer. If in the midst of our, our time of trial, our, our, our vulnerability, we would immediately come to him, that we would find salvation. So we see those three us-centered petitions of this prayer. They're an outflow of that first desire that we would be the kind of people that God made us to be, giving glory to his name. Father, we just want to trust you. Would you provide for us? every day. Help us to trust you. God, we want to forgive like you forgave us. We're letting it go for other people. Would you continue 
to forgive. Lord, we just want to look more like you. Get us out of temptation. Deliver us. Help us to pursue you. And then finally, you know, every week when we pray this, there's another clause here. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It wasn't present in what we read in, in Matthew and the uh, in that version. In fact, there's only a few uh, translations in which this, this does pop up, and one being the, uh, the King James Version. And that's the reason for that is that in the oldest manuscripts that we have, that clause is not there. It is in a few manuscripts, and so uh, you often might find it in a footnote. It's also in the Didache, which is a, um, a word that means teachings, the teachings of the early apostles in some form. And so there is a tradition that, that says, we can pray in this sort of way. It's, a, at the very least, a nice little tag at the end of the prayer, right? It gives us a benediction of sorts for this. Um, some have also suggested it was actually based upon a prayer by King David when he received gifts from the people uh, for building of the temple. So they were finally in the promised land. They experienced stability, flourishing enough. They felt they could upgrade God's tabernacle space to a more permanent structure. And this is what David had to say in 1 Chronicles 29, he says, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor and everything in heaven on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to us all. He really kind of goes over the top in this uh, his, uh, um, exaltation here. Whether it was in Jesus' original prayer or not, this kind of prayer, right, it provides at least a helpful sort of closing to our prayer and a reminder that everything belongs to God. What's interesting to me, though, is that David thought that they would honor God by giving this big, huge, fancy temple, right? He gives this long, elaborate prayer, much different from what Jesus says to do, right, than uh, babbling on and on and on. When Jesus came, God in flesh, incarnate, he showed us that all we have to do to honor him is to follow him, to extend the same grace that we have been offered. Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, he brought the temple to us in the lowest of places, right? He forgave us. He reconciled us, imparted the Holy Spirit to us, made it possible for us to pray in faith, knowing the heart of God by giving us the Holy Spirit. So then, knowing all of this, all the, the significance behind these phrases, knowing what God has done for his people all throughout history, has done for us, all the ways he's provided for us and invited us into that family. This then is how we can pray. Remembering that we bear the name of God, our Father, seeking uh, help to do that name justice. We can seek our Father's will for the restoration of our world, that it can look like God's kingdom and ask that in any ways that we can contribute to that. This is hands and feet that we might do so. That we can trust in the Father's provision so that we might surrender our appetite for more. That we could submit our wounded hearts before God, extending forgiveness towards others, being forgiven by him in return. And to ask that we might be sustained and delivered from temptation and evil, trusting always 
Father has more than enough and longs to give good gifts. Lord, we are thankful for your, your mercy. We are thankful for the ways in which you have saved us. We are thankful that you call us into relationship with you. That you are faithful, you are kind, that you are good. We are thankful that we know what good is because we know you. And Lord, it is challenging to know that we bear your name. That there are responsibilities of bearing that name. Oftentimes we feel like, how could we ever live up? How could we ever live up to that to give you the glory that you deserve? And yet you have gifted us with your Holy Spirit that we can be transformed from the inside out to desire what is good, to desire what is of you. And so we pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We would embody that kingdom in what we want, what we do, and what we proclaim. I pray that in your name. Amen.